Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 29 through 31. I'll be reading chapter 29, a portion of that text. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 251. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray as we turn to God's word now together. Lord, we thank you that you are the ancient of days, that there is none above you, none before you. And we pray now that you would speak through your word to us. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Forty-five years ago this year, uh, Frank Barker, who many of you are familiar with, at least the name, if you didn't know the man, who was the former pastor, the founding pastor of, of Briarwood Presbyterian Church, but he and a couple of recent college graduates got together and thought about college ministry in the Birmingham area. And while some of the larger campuses in Alabama had college ministries going to them, some of the smaller campuses were, uh, weren't served by some of those other ministries, and so 
45 years ago, the very small beginnings of campus outreach started. Um, I know that some of you have been involved with campus outreach and I'm thankful for the way it's impacted uh, your lives uh, for, for Emily Duke, for the Scots, others who were involved there. Uh, campus outreach for the past 45 years has grown from a few small campuses in Birmingham to about 120 campuses, nearly a dozen countries, and the message has always been Go to Jesus, find life in him, find life in Christ and with a local church that you can walk that life with. And I'm, I'm grateful for that kind of message. So that's 45 years ago that 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 kind that organization began, that it began proclaiming this message. But at the same time, uh, 45 years ago, actually yesterday, there was another so-called ministry that promised life, that pointed people to where they thought life would be found And 45 years ago, yesterday, it was revealed that the life they promised ended ultimately in tragedy. Jim Jones founded an organization that would be called the People's Temple in Indianapolis and had several people following him there, had a decent number, but then moved the ministry out to California where it grew into the thousands. There he he offered uh, faith healing. You could come to him and he would heal you if you had enough faith. He said, if you follow my teachings, this is where freedom and liberty and life itself can be found. But then his allegations became uh, clear that he was an abusive kind of leader. He fled California with about a thousand of his followers to the South American country of Guyana, where he established a commune in his own name, Jonestown. But even back in California, people were getting reports that human rights abuses were happening, that some of the people who came with him wanted to escape, wanted to get out, and he wouldn't let them go home. And that eventually led to a congressman, a man by the name of Leo Ryan, flying down there with a small delegation to investigate what was going on in Jonestown. And as Congressman Ryan got back onto an airplane with several other people to try to leave Jonestown, He was gunned down, as were the rest of the people with him. And 45 years ago yesterday, this commune that promised life had death all around as 909 people drank flavor aid with cyanide in it, making it one of the largest mass killings in American history. Both of these organizations... Both of these organizations were going along together 45 years ago this year, and both of them were pointing to places where they say, if you go this way, if you follow this kind of path, you can find life. You'll find hope. You'll find what you're looking for there. But those who looked to where CO, where campus outreach was pointing, they actually found life, even through difficult times. Those people who clung to Christ where they were pointing have found life. And those who believed the people's temple, that life was found there in Jim Jones, they found only at the end sorrow and death. And that is in many ways what the concluding chapters of 1 Samuel are holding out for us. These similar kinds of stories. And we're going to find today, as we have found before, that David and Saul are going to come up in these back-to-back stories. And the reason that he comes up, the reason that the author is so frequently putting them just right side by side is because he wants to show us, the Lord wants to show us, the outcomes of these two ways of life are drastically different. 
We've already seen some of their character compared. We've seen the way in which they rule their people. But now, at the very close, with the curtain pulled back and say, if you want to follow this to the end, let me show you where it leads. So here's the main point of these concluding chapters, these final three chapters that we're going to walk through this morning. It's there on your note sheet if you grabbed one of those coming in. Find life in God's chosen king where you will find death in a king like all the nations. Find life in God's chosen king where you will find death in a king like all the nations. And we're, we're going to walk through, uh, maybe more like jog through these three chapters. And for each chapter, we're going to be asking a question about deliverance, about life and rescue. And I'll be very upfront this morning. There are uh, a few places where we will stop and briefly talk about applying this. But I have mainly in mind one big application. And that's because this text feels like an urgent one. Not, not one that has just lots of life lessons. There are those there, and I'll encourage you even later, maybe go and meditate over some of these passages. But this text together feels more like a freight train speeding towards us with one great big point. Find life. Don't, don't just make your life a little bit better now, but find where life is and cling to that. Cling to him. And that's been my prayer for us this week. We would see again that there is a king who saves to the uttermost. There's a king who saves his people completely. And that you, if you have, have not turned to him, that you would today. And that if you have clung to him, that you would be encouraged. Maybe even in the midst of some of the hardest, most difficult seasons that you might be in today. You know the outcome of following that king leads to life. Now, last week, we, if you were here with us, we ended two stories on a bit of a cliffhanger, and that's where we were left with David and Saul. They both end up in problems that they had created for themselves. Okay, so Saul, throughout his life, has rejected the counsel of God. God, over and over, has spoken to Saul multiple times. He says, this is what I want you to do, and Saul has refused to obey. And so at the end of his life, when he goes to God, God is silent. And when God is silent, Saul decides... I'm actually going to turn to a medium, someone who could speak to the dead on his behalf. And he's told by Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, that the next day he's going to die in battle. And that's the dark ending of chapter 28. Saul walks out into the night and that's it. But David also is in trouble. He fled to Philistia, to the enemies of Israel, because he had talked himself into the place where he said, I don't think that I'm going to live any longer if I stay in the land. If I stay here, Saul is going to kill me. So he has gone into Philistia. He's been tricking Achish, the king there, that he's been fighting for Achish, when really he's been fighting for Israel. And in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, the cliffhanger that you get is that Achish, the king, The host of Saul, of David rather, says, okay, we're going now to go actually fight Israel. And you're going to come with me. And so so David is left with this rock and a hard place. Am I going to fight against my people and do what I've been telling Achish I've been doing? Or am I going to fight against Achish, against the Philistines and become, show him that I've been a traitor all along? And that's what we run into when we get to chapter 29, when we hear the, the story pick back up. And the question we should be asking is, will God deliver his chosen king? 
David has ended up in this place, and now is God going to provide a way of escape? And what you heard is the answer. David and his men have fooled Achish, but as the other lords of the Philistines, the other commanders of the armies come together, they see David and his men, and they're actually a lot more discerning than Achish was. And they realize, you know what, that guy, the best way for him to go home and make up with Saul is to come home with the heads of a couple of dozen, or as the song says, tens of thousands of Philistines. And so he says, they say, David cannot march out with us. And Achish has this kind of reluctant discussion with David. He says, ah, you're truthful and honest. You're an angel of God, which should strike us as ironic because he's been more like an angel of death to the people around Philistia. But nonetheless, David gets to go home. And like this rock in a hard place where you're like, he has no good options. There's no path out that you can see at the end of chapter 28. And in God's good mercy, God delivers his chosen king. God provides a way of escape, even when he thinks there is no other way. And it should, this, this should highlight God's mercy. Now you may not see God's name in this text, but over and over throughout 1 Samuel, we've, we've been in that place where we've seen how God behind the scenes is just working all things according to his providential will. And so for his king, who he said, you're going to be the king over my people, God here provides a way of escape. And it is such a mercy. Friends, David has done nothing here to deserve this. He has lied. He has killed. He's on the brink of going and murdering his own people. And God in his mercy provides a way of escape. This is not a promise that that you can kind of go and do likewise. Okay, don't apply this text that way. Like David gets out of his consequences, so you you can too. But God does mercifully, mercifully give grace to David. And if you are in that place, friend, where you feel like, I don't know how the Lord provides, know that his arm is not too short to save. And so when David seems to have no way out, the Lord provides a means of escape. But then he comes to chapter 30, and if you read ahead this morning, or read ahead this week rather, you find David comes out of one trial and into another. Look down at chapter 30, verse 1. We'll read just sections of chapter 30 together. So chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, that's the city that they had been given by the king, when they came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And now we face a new question. The question is no longer, will God deliver his chosen king? But can God's chosen king deliver his people? Can God's chosen king deliver his people? Just, just imagine like the emotional roller coaster that David and his men experience. They escape 
from where they think they're going to have to commit atrocities against their own people, perhaps. And they go home thinking, God has done it. What mercy we have seen. And as they come over the ridge line towards home, they see smoke rising from their city. And everyone is affected, even David, as his wives are taken captive. And David's great distress is magnified, not just because of his loss, but because of the way the people want to treat him out of their sorrow and anger. Just look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But how then does David respond? What does David do differently here that he didn't do in previous chapters? Look at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. I don't know if you noticed this last week going through this, but all throughout chapters 27 and 28, the story of David and what he's undergoing, uh, when he's doing all this thing, there's one character who is very conspicuously absent. Not once when David is fleeing in Philistia is the name of the Lord upon his lips. Not one is, does he come up there as the one who he has turned to. But here, David seems to have learned his lesson. So no longer is he acting like the mercenary or the warlord. He's strengthening himself in the Lord, his God. He's acting like the king. He's acting like God's chosen king. This is, this is David doing what we said last week. Again, preaching to yourself. Taking the gospel and pressing it in. God's promised me. God has promised me, David says, I will be the king. And I will preach this to myself. I will believe in him and find strength in his word. And with that first right response, David now kind of begins a whole host of right responses. It sets a very different trajectory from what we saw previously. So look at verse 8. The Lord, David now turns to the Lord for direction. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answers him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Bezor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Bezor is like 12 to 13 miles away from Ziklag. So these guys just find out devastating news that their families are taken. And then they go run a half marathon. And 200 of them had skipped cardio day for the past month. And so they have to stay and rest while the other 400 say, we've got to keep going. And then as they continue their pursuit, they come across, again, in God's good providence, uh, a man who is on the verge of death. An Egyptian who is... Uh, who's starving and is dehydrated to be, to say the least, but they give him food and water. He revives and comes to. And they say, where have you come from? Who do you belong to? And in God's good kindness, he says, you know, I was a servant of this Amalekite group of people and we've been doing some raids in the country, but, but once I fell sick, my master said, you know, you're no longer any use to me and I've been discarded and cast off. And if that sounds familiar, again, it's because we've seen David doing this in his better moments already. David gathering the people who are thrown aside by those others and saying, you can find rest here. You can belong here. 
And this, this Egyptian servant says that he can take David to where the raiding party has gone, where the camp of the Amalekites are. So in verse 16, they get there and it's like a party that's been going on. The Amalekites are spread out. They're enjoying themselves after successful raids and all these places. And David catches them totally unaware. So kids, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. Kids, I want you to listen just for words that are repeated a few times. So you can tell me, I'm going to ask you after this, what are some words that are repeated that the author is trying to show us here, okay? So verses 17 through 20. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Uh, kids, raise your hand. What are, what's a word or a few words that are repeated there a couple of times? Luke, I, I almost never call on you. It feels like you, as a pastor's kid, you don't get it. So Luke, what is, what's, what is repeated here? David, that's a good answer. David is repeated over and over. He's going to show that David is the one bringing deliverance. What else? There's another word that's repeated a lot there. Lane, do you have an idea? All, that's right. Those are, those are the two words that come up multiple times here in the story. David captures everything. He rescues all of them. All of the wives, all of the children, not just the people though, but all of the spoil that's taken away, every bit of it David brings back. He restores and saves to the uttermost. And now, it it would seem like that's a great place to end a good story. It's not where this story ends. Because David, as he's going back to kind of enjoy what should be a victory parade, He gets to those people he left behind. So this is verse 21 of chapter 30. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And here David's response. When David came near to the people, he greeted them. But then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Okay, so some of David's men, they look around, they they say, these guys have just been chilling for a day at least. And we have gone and risked our lives to bring all this stuff back. You know, they can have their wives and their kids, but all the stuff, it's ours. We fought for it. We won this victory. It is ours to decide what to do with it. But David has a vastly different kind of perspective. Look at his perspective in verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. In other words, this is not our stuff. This isn't our victory. We didn't win this because we're so heroic, because we have more endurance in our legs than these other guys. We won this because God was with us. And if he was with us, if he delivered all of this to us, then we don't have the right to decide what to do with it. 
We distribute freely. We give to all those we call brothers. So the chapter ends with David distributing the spoil. Both those who went to the battle, those who stayed in the baggage, and even those who were like nowhere near David's band, those who were out in Judah, he says, here, a present from a future king. And this is the final portrait we get of David. This is the, the closing of the story of David in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll pick back up in 2 Samuel, Lord willing, in you know, like 6 to 12 to 24 months. So just kind of put a pin in that. But, but David, this is the close of David here. And if you want to think about this is a place, I'd say you can think through this. And if I were just preaching chapter 30, we would spend a lot of time saying David is a wonderful example And he is. God gives his word so that we have people to look to. And I hope, uh, I I can think back in the past month on things where I have said, I need an action plan right now. And then I think, I should pray about three days later. And David is a good example for me to inquire of the Lord before taking action. There's a host of ways in which maybe even this afternoon you can read back through this chapter and say, how does this point me to walking faithfully as part of God's people. But but more than, especially when you take all of these stories together, more than wanting to look like David yourself, what this story should leave you is wanting a king like David to bring you rescue. I want a king like David who will save me, a king who God desires. A king who is what Israel needs and a king who is the kind of savior that God provides. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute, but I don't want to lose what the author is doing and putting this next story right here. Because the, David is, is not the only king in these last three chapters. Right? He's the future king. He's the one who's coming. He's been anointed by God. And so he knows that one day he'll reign over Israel. But Israel has a current king in Saul. And Saul was the king that all the people had asked for. The one they said, we want him to fight our battles for us. We want a king like all the nations around us, were their words when they asked for this king in Samuel. And like David, Saul too faces a chapter, a situation in chapter 31 where his people are in need. And so the question in chapter 31 turns from David to Saul and asks, will a king like all the nations Will he deliver his people? Uh, This short chapter falls a day after what happened in chapter 28. You know there he was told that Saul was told he would die, that Israel would lose. But but maybe, maybe we hold on and say, will God deliver? Will Saul be able to deliver? But look at the story in verse 1. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, 
he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. That's, that's complete and utter defeat. Saul, his sons, his armor bearer, his closest companions and warriors, none of them escaped this battle. Even the cities on the other side, they lie abandoned as people flee and the Philistines overrun them. And Saul may have escaped the mistreatment of the Philistines in life, but he did not escape their derision and death. The, the close of the chapter tells how the Philistines come into the, where the battle was the next day, and they find Saul and his sons. They behead Saul. They send messengers throughout the land. In the words of the text, it says they send messengers out to proclaim the good news. That's a phrase we use a lot here because it's the word we mean for gospel. They're going and proclaiming the gospel of the Philistines. They have defeated their enemies. They take Saul's bodies and the bodies of his sons and attach it to the wall of one of their cities. Like a very dark billboard saying to everybody who passes by, we conquered. We won. And in an act of merciful bravery, it's the men of Jabesh-Gilead, some of the only people in all the book of 1 Samuel who benefit from Saul's reign. Way back in 1 Samuel 11, they go by night and carry the bodies of Saul and his sons back and give them a proper burial. Now, these two stories, specifically, in chapters 30 and 31, especially when you read them back to back, they are starkly different. And in many ways, that is the point of what is trying, what they're trying to communicate here. It's like walking from bright daylight in chapter 30 into utter darkness in chapter 31. David saves everybody. Not one thing is lost by David. And in chapter 31, Saul loses absolutely everything and everyone that was near to him. And these stories are here back to back to make one very clear and unmistakable point. You can find life. You can find rescue in God's chosen king. Or you will inevitably find death in following a king like all the nations. And in the time that we have left, I just want to tease those that out and press that in with two truths. Two truths for us to cling to. The first is this, except for Christ, every hope that promises life ends in death. Apart from Christ, every promise of life, everything that promises life will ultimately end in death. And that's why we need what feels like and what is a very dark story like chapter 31. The people have asked for King Saul to be the one who would fight their battles for them, who would bring deliverance and peace But in the end, all who relied on Saul to fight for them end with hope that is crushed. Because the hope that was held out for them was a false one. It was one that could not deliver. And we need clear pictures like this because we are surrounded by false hopes. False things proclaiming that life is found in this way, in this product, in this relationship. In this service. And they will all promise some sort of good deliverance. 
And it's really difficult sometimes in the midst of those promises to step back and discern, where is this thing actually taking me? They offer something to us, but they hide the outcome of their ways. Uh, This is the type of thing we saw a couple weeks ago in core training when we talked through the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has all this wisdom given to a young man growing up in an Israelite household, maybe even learning to be king. And at the very end, at the end of Proverbs chapter 9, where this man is about to step out from under his parents' roof into adulthood, he's told by his father, by the Lord, that there are two people calling out to him to follow them. There's lady wisdom. There's a way that says, follow me and you'll find life. And it actually does lead to life. But in Proverbs 9, there's, there's another person who's calling out and promising life. And it's Lady Folly. And she's saying, if you follow me, you'll find life. This is on, on your note sheet there. Proverbs 9, 13. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive. She's promising one thing, but bringing another. And she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But listen to where they go. He, the one listening to her, does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is like fishing. It's like a fish who sees a delicious worm and thinks this is going to be my next very good meal, but doesn't realize that it's covering a hook that will end with him in the frying pan. And this is true for us as well. We should constantly be wary of the things that promise us life, the thing that promises us deliverance. And we should have the discernment to ask, where is this hope taking me? Where is King Saul going to lead me? Where is this thing going to go? It's easy to pay attention to the glossy pictures, to the promises of a good life, to the cool stuff that is promised to us. But ask what happens when the glossy photo shoot is over and when the stuff wears out. Uh, In 1997, at the age of 27, uh, Matt Damon, an actor, won his first, his, his only to this date, Academy Award. He won it at a young age for a screenplay that he wrote. Uh, and he, in an interview several years later, he recalls with a host saying, what was that night like? Tell us about that big day. And he says, I remember very clearly looking at that award and thinking, imagine chasing that, not getting it, and then getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with all of your life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste of your life. I imagined another one of me not getting the award until I was an old man and going like, where did my life go? What have I done? And then it's over. Damon is pointing to something that's true of not just Academy Awards, but of any number of things that people chase after to find meaning and hope. Things that promise good payouts, And then you get them and realize that they don't deliver what they promise. Or if they do, it delivers for a short period. And then it vanishes. Money promises to shield you from all of life's problems. It calls and says, if I had enough money, I could fix this problem. And it ultimately does no good when you're lying in your casket. 
And in a moment of stress or loneliness, there are a whole host of things that call out promiscuity, pornography, drugs, alcohol. All of these types of things promise relief from pressures that you may feel. And they leave in their wake untold shame and sorrow and even enslavement. Even for Saul here, Saul actually thinks that the hope that he has is in self-harm. He's not doing it. He's doing it because he thinks that there's deliverance. There's some relief found there. And I want to be clear. It's not that suicide is an unforgivable sin. But Saul thought he was escaping one judgment. But in doing that, he stepped into another judgment. He left the realm where the Philistines could judge him. And he went to where he was going to stand before Almighty God himself. Self-harm did not deliver the promised thing that he thought it would. Now, I, I want to, I want to especially, this is true for all of you here, but, but I especially, if you are a kid, and maybe especially if you're in middle school or high school, I want to speak very specifically to you for just a moment. Because as you get older, you're going to find, not just that your parents have told you, if you're here, Lord willing, your parents have told you, follow Christ, and that's where life is. And as you get older, you will find places and people who will tell you, life is found here. I found my purpose when I started pursuing this thing, when I found this relationship. Don't be surprised by that. But the Bible is clear that all of those paths, every single one of them, apart from Christ, leads to death. And and if you have trouble one day, one day if you get there and you wonder, I, I wonder if this thing where I could place my hope, I wonder if that would lead to life. I want you to trust this. And if you have trouble trusting this, then I want you to come find me. Because I can point you, I can point, I won't do it this morning, because this is public, but I could point you to multiple people in this church who have walked down roads where they thought they would find life. And the further that they went, the further that we went down those roads, the more it smelled like decay. And by God's good mercy, the Lord pulled us out. But the things that promise life, they don't all lead there. There's one who does. And if you one day have trouble saying, I I want to follow this thing, but I don't know where it leads, come talk to another Christian who can tell you, even by experience, that it doesn't. In the uh, classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic, the main character Christian, he, he feels the weight of this burden on his back at the very beginning of the book. He becomes aware, I've got this burden, and he thinks, if I die with this on my back, I'm going to go down into judgment. He says, all the way to execution, to death. And the good man evangelist says, if you want to rid yourself of your burden, follow this path. It will take you to the narrow gate, and beyond that, you'll find someone who will tell you where to go. It takes him to the cross. But as, as Christian leaves the city of destruction... As he tries to flee from there, his family and his friends all gather at the door of his house and call to him, come back. And Bunyan writes this of what Christian did. The man, Christian, put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him. Friends, this this text and the whole Bible want to scream at you. Flee the city of destruction. Put your fingers in your ears if you need to. 
and run towards life, eternal life. Which leads to the second truth to press in from this passage. If there's a host of things that promise life but lead ultimately to death, then you can know that Jesus will surely rescue his people and give them life. Uh, Laura and I talked about this passage some this week, and she just, as we got to the end, she stopped and remarked and just said, isn't God so amazingly gracious? Isn't he so good to save Just think about all the people from chapters 29 and 30 who receive God's good grace. We already talked about David a little bit. So if if you feel, if you feel like you have made a mistake that you are in such a place that you cannot get out. And you may say, I don't deserve to be saved. Friends, just look at David. The king who followed his fears into the jaws of Israel's enemies and who was rescued by the merciful provision of God. God's arm is not too short to save or bring life to you, even if you feel trapped. Do you feel like you have been cast off by the world? Like everywhere you go, you are the outsider. There is nobody who wants you. Maybe you feel that way and you think Jesus is just another way to be rejected. This church is another place where I will feel like the outsider. Friend, look to the slave who is left behind on the brink of death, who is gently nursed back to health and finds a host of people to belong to. For though you may feel cast off by others, Jesus extends his arms and offers life. Great David's greater son does not turn away anyone who runs to him and clings to him. Do you feel maybe like you've been taken captive by a force that you are hopeless to fight against? That you do the things you do not want to do, almost like you're a helpless victim of some otherworldly captor. If that's how you feel, friends, you're not far from the truth. That is the position in which we are told we are in. But look at the victory that Christ wins. On the cross, he suffers a penalty that we deserve. He dies a death that we should have died. But as he is raised to life, he puts to death all of those who would take us captive. He puts death, hell, and grave to the flight, to flight. And he saves all that belong to him. That's why Paul can say, this is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament in Colossians. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ has triumphed over everything that would want to keep you captive. And you can find deliverance in him. Do you feel maybe even though maybe now you feel like I've been faithfully following Jesus, but right now I'm just too feeble to carry on. I don't know if I can go another step. I'm, I'm no longer even useful to God. Look at David and what he gives to those who remain behind. Those who are feeble and who feel like they have nothing to give. Just like David, Christ gives his life and his victory. Not to those who are mighty. Not to those who, who feel like they've done great things. Those who earned their way to this victory. But those who have nothing left to give. Charles Spurgeon actually sounds a lot like John Bunyan when he wrote this. You little faiths, 
you despondencies, you much afraids, you feeble minds. Don't take those as insults. They may just be true of where you are. But if that's you, you that sigh more than you sing. Have you ever been there? You that sigh more than you sing. You that would but cannot. You that have a great heart for holiness but feel beaten back in your struggles. The Lord shall give you his love, his grace, his favor, as surely as he gives it to those who can do great things in his name. Brothers and sisters, the Christ we follow graciously gives his life. And so now everyone, everyone who clings to him, find life. He is amazingly gracious. He loses not one that belonged to him. Now, the, these final stories of chapters 29 through 31, as well as the whole book, it's laying out for us, it has laid out for us, two kings to follow, two ways to live, two outcomes that are starkly different. But we were actually told this at the very beginning. We were told in the first sermon, the first few chapters, that's what this book would be about. Remember back to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah, the barren woman who feels that she has nowhere to go, who is outcast, who is barely loved by her family. But she has a child given to her by the Lord, and she sings this song in 1 Samuel 2. There's just a few pieces of it there, on your, a few verses on your notes. Hannah says, He, the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Friends, the close of 1 Samuel, God has kept his word. He has given strength to his king. He has guarded the feet of his faithful ones, even through this king. And the wicked who have raised themselves up, who have relied on their own might, have been cut off. And those then who now follow a king like the nations, that is the warning that this passage holds out. Don't be cut off. And those who cling to the Lord's king, who cling to Jesus, find life. Would you, friends, cling even now to him and find life in God's chosen king? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your kind mercy to us in your king who sovereignly reigns and rescues all of your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, help us to cling to him. Help us to have discernment with, of all of the false hopes that are held out for us. I pray specifically for the kids and youth in this room and in this church, that you would help them to know the lies of the evil one. And that you would show them the good life that Christ offers. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, even it, though it may lead through dark places, we know, Lord, that you promise and deliver unto life eternal. We pray that you would do that now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.